I got to talk to you today about something about the sermon. You know, Christmas is behind us, right? Presents all opened? They're all opened. Did you eat enough? Who ate too much? Come on, confess. Dylan, you didn't eat too much? I don't believe it. So I did eat too much. I ate enough for all of us. You know, we maintained all of our traditions. Some of us started new traditions. You know, that's wonderful. And our Advent conspiracy that's been our focus here for four weeks, five weeks now, has come or is coming to an end today. And I just want to talk to you about that for a minute as we're going through our sermon and explain something. You know, as we've been doing this, you know, I, I really hope that as we've put this energy into Advent Conspiracy, that what's happened is that your Christmas celebration has been more genuine. And that, um, that we have succeeded in some ways in our effort to conspire together to take back Christmas to what it really was intended to be, the celebration of the birth of Christ. And so as we come to an end of it, the question is for us today, you know, what now? You know, what do we do with what we learned and what can we carry forward into 2011 from what we learned over a four-week emphasis and, and, you know, is there any way we can take it forward? And and as I began to think about that over the last couple of weeks, um, I wanted to do this wrap-up to Advent Conspiracy. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to just kind of um, look at the Advent Conspiracy and draw from it some principles that we could put into practice for the upcoming year. And that was my plan. And actually, I had something happen. Our staff at a staff meeting said to me, would you do a wrap-up sermon to the Advent Conspiracy? We'd like you to to kind of summarize it for us. And I I intended on doing that. And as I began to think and pray and prepare about, about how could I draw some principles from the Advent Conspiracy out that we could apply, I thought, well, I'll just take a principle out of each of the four weeks and kind of summarize them and we'll, we'll talk about them today. But as I began to do that, something kind of, not unusual, but something very, very real by the, by the direction of the Spirit of the Lord began to, to happen to me. And, and as I began to prepare, I felt the Lord just kept directing me back to one point. And I just couldn't seem to get off that one point. He began to just kind of open up this, this one point to me. And I, I kind of thought, like, you know, Lord, why this? It's not what I wanted to do, God. You ever have that? God, I wanted to do this, and what do you mean do that? And so I'm, I'm kind of wrestling, and as you know me at all, um, some guys really enjoy sermon preparation. I, I agonize in it. And so I'm agonizing in it, and I'm saying, God, what do you really want? And I really felt the Lord direct me to, to one specific point, and what we'll, we're going to talk about, it's going to be talking about tying to worship today. And... I really couldn't figure out why. And I, I'm, you know, sometimes when God leads you, you're saying, I'm, I'm 99% sure it was the Lord, but not 100% sure. And I went through that process, and I'm in the prayer room this morning. And I'm praying before church with a group of the intercessors, and we're praying. And, and as I'm walking back and forth in the gymnasium, and I'm praying and I'm worshiping, I felt the Holy Spirit said, this is why I focused you on this one point. And he kind of showed me, and I'm like, oh, God, you're really smart. I wouldn't have thought of that. And this is the point before we get into the sermon. I hadn't really planned on saying this because I didn't even think about it till this morning as I felt the Lord show me in prayer. That we've just come through the Advent Conspiracy. We've just come through our celebrations of Christmas. And one of the most common things that almost all of us probably did, maybe all of us did over the last couple of days was go and meet with family members you know, aunts and uncles and grandmas and grandpas and brothers and sisters, and we celebrated Christmas, right? That's what we did. That's the primary thing we do through Christmas. 
And here's what I know about going and getting together with people. You can't take any two people and put them in a room without having the possibility of controversy or difficulty. You know, the very first couple, as soon as they, get, as soon as they sin, Adam's blaming his wife Eve. It's her fault, God. She's blaming the devil. You know, the very first couple, the, they have their first two children. The first two children they have can't even get along, and one kills the other one in a field. When you bring people together, there's possibility of controversy, difficulty, and challenges. And as I was praying this morning, I just sensed so clearly from the Holy Spirit, knowing I was going to preach about worship and some things related to what worship does in our lives, that the Lord said, the reason I'm having you do it today is because a lot of people spent a lot of time with a lot of people over the last couple of days, and they smiled on the outside, but inside they're crying. And a lot of people are going to come into church this morning you know, and they had to endure some things they didn't want to endure. They had to put up with, you know, Uncle Louie who gets drunk every year and, and yells at Aunt Jane. You know, and, and uh, they had to endure being together with maybe some people. You know, there's an old saying, you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your relatives. You know? Now, God puts you in the family, you're in on purpose. Because he wants you to be an influencer in your family. But I know when I bring people together, when I get together with my family, there's a possibility for trouble. There's a possibility for, for difficulty, and I know you can't believe that could be with, with me in the room, but there, that's a possibility that could exist. And I know that's true for every single one of you. And I felt the Spirit of the Lord say, you know what, Mark, what I want to do today as I focus on worship is to, is to help our congregation understand that, you know, it's normal, and those are just, that's just life in those situations, but that God today wants to bring a sense of healing and restoration and blessing into your life that maybe you're carrying with you some things that weren't so great. See, because we think of celebrations and one and it's wonderful, but some people are struggling with loneliness because of maybe divorce. They, they were alone on Christmas Eve because, you know, the ex has the kids and, or whatever. Some other people are saying, you know what, everybody else got together and I wasn't invited. Somebody else said I was invited, but there's no way I'm stepping foot in that guy's house. And you all know the different stories. You all can tell your own. And God today wants to bring, you know, I, I walk in this morning saying, well, everybody's going to be happy. It's Christmas. And as I'm praying, I'm thinking, yeah, we might be happy, and, and I hope you are. But there's also, whenever we get together, an opportunity for some struggle and some difficulty. And I think the message that God really, I felt directed to preach today that we're going to get into right now is designed to help us with this specifically and to change us for the coming year. And so this is what I want to talk about today. And I really felt that th this is exactly what God wants us as a church to become people of. That we will become people who, in 2011 and the rest of our lives, prioritize personal praise and worship in our lives. And that's what we're going to talk about. How we're going to live lives that are characterized by people who prioritize personal praise and worship. You know, we found, as a foundation with Advent Conspiracy, that as we looked into the Christmas story, the one thing it was filled with was worship. We saw that, that everybody in the stories worshipped. Mary worshipped, and the angels worshipped, and the shepherds worshipped, and the wise men worshipped. And that worship and praise is just simply the normal response to meeting the Savior. You, what do you say when the, when the Lord has come? You say, joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. It's the natural response to meeting the Savior is worship. 
But I want you to understand something about that worship. Our worship in those cases, and the, everybody in the story's worship in those cases, is worship as a response to something that God has done. That God is an initiator. God is the initiator. He's the ultimate initiator. He's the one who initiates and we're the ones who respond. And that's what worship is all about. He initiates things in our lives and our proper response to what he does toward us is to respond with hearts of worship. Think of it this way. As the initiator, he created everything. He's the one who restores broken relationships between man and God. He's the one who provides everything we have. The Bible says he makes it rain on the just and the unjust. He gives us everything. It says every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. Everything we have, he initiates. He provides for us. In salvation, he's the one, it says, who draws us to himself, that no man comes to the, to the Son unless the Father draws him that we're not the ones who initiate it. We didn't wake up one day and say, I need Jesus. He's the one who pulls and draws us. He's the, he's the initiator. And then when we make a decision to walk with him, he's the one who saves us. It says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't because we woke up one day and said, I think I want to figure out how to get connected to the creator of the universe. It's because he said, you need to be connected to me, and he made a plan and a way. Everything in our lives, God provides. Whether we know it or not, God is the initiator, and we are responders to his activity. Well, worship in the life of a believer is just the normal and the correct response to meeting Jesus and knowing Jesus and walking with Jesus. It's the normal response because he is always giving to us, and therefore, we are always receiving from him. Jesus described himself in one of, the most, one of the most best descriptions of Christ gave for himself to the world ever when he said this, and it's recorded in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. It says, For even the Son of Man, which is Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. He says, When you look at, look at me, think about me, think about Jesus, think about a servant. He is always giving. He's come to give, to give his life a ransom, to a payment. He said, I've come into the world always giving, and you and I are people who are always receiving. And so with hearts of thanksgiving, the normal, natural thing to do is to be like the people in the Advent conspiracy, or the Advent story that we looked at, that when they came in, into the reality of knowing that Jesus had come, that he was the Savior of the world, they responded with worship. Does that make sense? Worship? Does that make sense? All right. Worship is the natural response to, to understanding that God is the initiator in our lives. Now here's what I think very practically God wants for you today. If you want 2011 to be your greatest year of your life, and who doesn't? If you want this year to be better than last year, if you want this year, if you're struggling, if you've gone through 2010, and outside you smile when you come to church, but inside you say, isn't there more? That you go to your job every day and you say, man, God's provided a good job for me, but isn't there more? That you live in this relationship with, with, your, with your spouse and your kids, and you say, isn't this great, but isn't there more? And you don't admit it to anybody else ever, but when you're praying every day and you're thinking about the Lord, you're saying, God, is this all there is? And all you can think of is, I wish I could go to heaven, because this earth ain't so great. You say, isn't there more? Well, I believe there is more, and I believe God has something more for you, 
and it's tied to being a person who prioritizes personal worship in their life. Because if you'll admit it, you really hope that 2011 is better than 2010. Don't you? I want it to be better. I want 2011 to be better than 2010, even if it was your greatest year ever. I bet you you still want it to be better. And if you want that to happen, then I challenge you to right now make a decision in your life. And we're going to talk about the decision for the next 30 minutes. To make a decision in your life that you will intentionally look for what God has given you, is given you, is doing in your life, is providing for you, and you will make a choice as a priority to choose to praise and worship Him for those things that every day He is giving into your life. That you will prioritize personal praise and worship. And when I say that, I'm asking you to do this. I'm asking you to, 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 I'm talking about going beyond singing along with the worship team on Sunday morning. Now that's wonderful. I'm glad you sing along with the worship team on Sunday morning. I do too. I think they're pretty good. You know what? But I'm talking about going beyond that to making sure that words of praise and worship flow from your lips every day. That every single day of your life that you're going to commit yourself to say, you know what, I'm going to be a worshiper with my life. And that every single day you will make sure that words of praise to God for his provision come out of your lips. And you know what, I bet you there's a lot of days, if we are honest, we could get up in the morning, go to bed at night, and a whole lot of words came across our lips. But it's possible to go to bed and not one word of praise came out of our lips. Not one word of worship was uttered that came from our spirit. And you know what, when we do that, when we commit to doing this, we can give praise and worship to him. It can be through song. You know one of the things I try to dedicate myself to doing, and I'm not good at it because I'm not a singer, is I have an iPod. And I try to plug in the earbuds and listen to praise and worship music. Because you know what I like to listen to? When I'm in the car or whatever, I want to listen to talk radio. I want to figure out what's going on in the world. I want to I get things done. And God wants me to learn to shut up, sit down, and just listen to him and praise him. So it can be from words that, that comes through songs. It can be just your spoken words that you speak to people. You talk about the goodness of God and His provision. And you talk about it with your kids and you talk about it with your wife. It can be a praise attitude that is expressed through just the quiet meditation in your heart. That you walk through the day and you think about the goodness of God and what He's provided. That you prioritize personal praise and worship in your life. That every time you make this commitment today... You're going to understand why you need to make it today. Because when times get bad, it's not the time to make it. That every time a negative or a critical or a destructive word comes out of your mouth, you will have made a decision today to overcome that attitude, to overcome that spirit. And I believe it is a spirit. I believe there's a spirit, of a critical spirit that comes upon people, and it's from the enemy that you will make a decision today that you will overcome that spirit through having a lifestyle committed to praise and worship. That you will be transformed from a criticizer to a praiser. You'll be transformed from a complainer to a praiser. That it's a decision you make today. And I tell you, you you will find that as you live a life of praise and worship, that the blessings of God will flow more freely in your life than they ever have And that the schemes of the devil, and so we're going to talk about, the schemes of the devil will be interrupted more powerfully as you become a person dedicated to praise and worship. Because here's 
the, the, the reality. Praise taps into the power of God. That's what I need you to understand today. Praise and worship taps into, I believe there's a spiritual dynamic in the way God has created his universe and how it works that praise and worship tap into the power of God. And you say, well, Pastor Mark, that's fine. That's fine to say when everything's going good and we're in church on Sunday morning and the worship team is singing and everybody's smiling and we're all dressed nice and we're happy and we all had our coffee, right? Everything's going good. It's easy to to praise right now. But you know what? Maybe not today, but maybe tomorrow, but maybe even today, I don't really feel like I have that much to praise God about. I don't really feel that I I don't have a a sense of me that says, I wish I could just go and praise God right now. I just don't feel like it. Well, friends, here is the thing that you need to understand. You need to get this today, because I believe it's what God has for all of us in 2011 that praise and worship are especially essential during times of difficulty because praise and worship release the power of God into your situation. And I really believe that. Grab your Bible with me. You say, I don't really care what you say, Mark. What's God say? Well, I agree with you. I don't really care what I say either. What's God say about it? For some of you, this is going to be a challenge because some of you are going to look at this and say, oh, it's just a story. I'll tell you, there are no just stories in Scripture. God's given us to learn from, right? So grab your Bible, open up to the book of Acts, chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. Getting there, New Testament. Just a little bit after the Gospels. Acts chapter 16, we're going to start in verse 22. We're going to read a story. A story about Paul and Silas. Paul the apostle, the first missionary. Silas, his partner. Um, they're um, going on missionary crusades, trips around the world. And they're, they're preaching and they're planting churches. And they come to a situation where they're in a, in a city of Philippi. And they meet a slave girl. And the slave girl is possessed by an evil spirit. And, and she keeps walking around. It's interesting. She keeps telling the truth about them, but it's by the inspiration of an evil spirit. She keeps walking around saying, these are men of God. And she trails around for days and days and days and days. And finally Paul says, shut up and come out of her. And the demon comes out and guess what? Instead of anybody being happy, her owners are mad. you know why they're mad? Because she had a spirit that could fortune tell. And all of a sudden they realize that their ability to make money off of her as a fortune teller was gone. And so they incite a riot and they, begin, they throw them in prison. And this is what the story's all about. We're going to talk about, we're going to read about where they're getting the crowd involved and then they end up tossed in prison. So Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 22. It says, The crowd rose up together against them, that's Paul and Silas, and the chief magistrate tore their robes off and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. So you know where caning comes from. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Don't harm yourself, for we're all here. 
And he called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Let's stop right there. I want you to notice in this story the role of praise and worship that it played in their situation. And before we even we talk about this, I want you to just understand something about how the Holy Spirit works through the inspiration of Scripture. That the things that are recorded in the Scripture are recorded on purpose. And that the Holy Spirit inspired the writers of Scripture to pen what He wanted communicated so that He could communicate with you and me and all the people who have looked at Scripture for thousands of years. And so the details of Scripture are incredibly important, and the details are not there by accident. The details are included so that we can learn from them. And in this story, the Holy Spirit saw to it that, it, that, it, that in the retelling of the story, that it reveals through the details the importance of praise and worship as part of the miraculous deliverance that Paul and Silas experienced. Now just think about the story we just looked at with Paul and Silas. You know, they had just cast a demon out of a slave girl. Her owners get angry with them because the spirit um, that controlled the girl had made them a lot of money as a fortune teller, and now she couldn't tell the future anymore. So they incite a riot against Paul and Silas, and they beat them with rods, and they throw them into prison. Now imagine you're Paul and Silas. You're just a Christian going about your day, and you're doing your best to serve the Lord. You're doing everything you can. And suddenly you say, this ain't such a great day. Today didn't turn out the way I planned it. I didn't plan on waking up this morning and, and having somebody beat me with rods and throw me in jail. You ever have a day it feels like that? feel like just kick me another time they didn't plan on it at all they could easily say in their hearts there's not much to praise God about today not a whole lot of good going on that we should be taking our time to to worship God today because you know God this is what people always do when problems go on they always seem to say God's at fault or God you've left me or or God where are you they don't know that right around the corner God's got a plan to do something miraculous and in the middle of the trial they start blaming God. Well, Paul and Silas didn't do that. They got a rotten day going on. They're getting accused and riots are happening and they're getting beaten and they're getting thrown into, into prison and we find them here serving God and, and, and singing praises. You know, Paul and Silas's attitude wasn't controlled by the circumstances. They obviously were committed to lives that prioritized personal praise and worship regardless of how they felt or what was going on. They obviously had that conviction and that foundation in their lives. And you say, well, why can you be so sure about that? I know I can be sure about it because there is no way these men felt like praising God at that time. Put yourself in their circumstance. There is absolutely no way they, inside our hearts, to say, oh, I just feel like singing praises to Jesus right now. They were tired. The story said, the details say, what time was it? It's midnight. They've had a long day. A long day of being lied about, beaten, you know, imprisoned, spat upon, clothes torn off. They've had a long day. It's midnight. And they're, they're, they're tired. You know what? They're hurting horribly. 
They weren't just slapped around a few times. It said their clothes were ripped off and they were beaten with rods. And it says the details, they were beaten with rods just a few times, right? It says they were beaten with rods how many times? Many times, it says. So they beat them with rods. Their backs are covered with blood. They're sore. I can't even imagine what it would be like. They're sore from the beating. And then they take them and put them in prison. And they're real comfortable there, right? They put them in the most comfortable place. It says, no, they didn't just throw them because they're afraid of... They, they said, keep them till the tomorrow. The jailer's nervous about them escaping. So they throw them not just in the prison, but the inner prison. And they don't just throw them in the inner prison. They lock their feet in the stocks. You ever been to one of these Wild West things? I remember there's pictures of me as a little kid in the stockades next to my brother. You know, and there's some sign like bandits or something like that. And your head's in the stock. Well, these guys were in the stockades with their feet. A big wood bar, a yoke that had metal... Um, hasps on them and they chained them and they locked them and they're locked in these things probably with their legs somewhat spread apart so that they can't run and escape it's midnight you've been beaten you've been falsely accused you're thrown into prison they lock you in this uncomfortable position you're probably cramped and uncomfortable and get this they probably didn't give them a steak dinner so they're thirsty and they're hungry the worst you could, can you imagine a way to feel worse physically than what these guys went through that day? I can't imagine any way to feel worse. But the amazing thing about the story, the whole, the whole heart of the story, the reason the Holy Spirit inspired to have it included in Scripture is because we don't hear them complaining. It says, it says, the other prisoners were listening to them. That's amazing. People are always listening to us in what we say and do. They're always listening. They're always watching. We don't hear them complaining. Instead, we hear them singing, and it's interesting, singing hymns of praise to God. I think it's interesting it says hymns, because what they're saying is they weren't just freely worshiping. They were singing songs they had learned. They were hymns of the church. And they were singing them at the hardest time in their entire life. I don't think they felt like it. I don't think they had a whole lot of inspiration to say, I'm just going to create some beautiful praise music to Jesus right now. They drew back from their memories based on a foundation of people who are going to praise God no matter what and they began to sing the songs of praise of the church. Began to worship God in the middle of the worst day of their entire lives. Friends, I can promise you that didn't flow from feeling. That flowed from a commitment to live lives of praise. They had to make that commitment in advance so that when the hard times came, they still praised God. Now that's just good in itself. If they just, if they just ended right there and it said and they praised God all night and everybody listened, that to me would be miraculous. Because I tell you what, I've been through a few days, never like that, but some hard days, and generally complaints come out more than praise comes out. And I've been around a lot of you. And when things get bad, generally complaints come out of our mouths instead of praise coming out of our mouths. These guys, it would be miraculous stopping right there, but it didn't stop there. The Holy Spirit inspires the story, to, the, the details to be recorded to go on and tell us what happened. I want us to look at the outcome because they sat and praised God in the midst of their difficulty. What was the outcome from the story? The first thing it says in our, in our story here, it says an earthquake occurred and their chains were unfastened and fell off all of them, them and the other prisoners. All of their chains fell off. Now it's interesting that it says the earthquake occurred and somebody could say, well, the reason the doors opened was because of the earthquake and the earthquake had nothing, you could rationalize and say it was just coincidental. But I want to tell you something. In earthquakes, locks don't unlock. 
When earthquakes happen, locks don't miraculously unlock from every prisoner in the prison. But the Holy Spirit inspires the details to say, the earthquake comes and all of the locks on all of their chains come open. Friends, that didn't happen because of the earthquake. That happened because of the intervention of God. And I believe there's a spiritual lesson God wants to teach us here about praise. It's this, that praise caused the chains of bondage, that they had chains, to be to be to drop away in their lives. And I believe that's a spiritual application God wants us to get today. That praise causes the chains of bondage to drop away in our lives. You know, as believers in Jesus, or as unbelievers, we can have areas of bondage in our lives. It's those areas of our soul, in our soul, our souls, our, our mind, our emotions, and our will. Those, those areas in our life where the enemy gets a foothold and causes turmoil and distress. Maybe it's unjustified fear. Maybe it's, it's panic. Maybe it's negativity. There's these strongholds. Maybe it's unforgiveness. These strongholds inside of us that the enemy gets kind of a foothold into our lives and he kind of controls us because he has a foothold into our mind, our emotions, and our wills. Those are, those are bondages. And the bondages in our lives generally enter through the three doorways. The doorways of unforgiveness, the doorways of self-pity, and the doorway of pride. These are the main entry points where the devil usually gets an inroad. He enters into our lives in areas of unforgiveness, of self-pity, and of pride. These are the common entry points. But I want you to hear this today. Praise and worship are powerful in counteracting that. Praise and worship close the door on the enemy's ability to bring bondages into our lives and that praise and worship destroy the enemy's ability to maintain bondages in our lives. And you say, why? It's very logical why it happens if you think about it. Because giving praise and worship to God does something. It aligns us... With, the, with, with, with truth. Singing songs, taking those hymns out and singing them. It causes us to say with our mouth what is really true. Praise and worship to God aligns us properly with truth and then causes us to deal with areas where Satan usually infiltrates. Unforgiveness, self-pity, and pride. And you ask yourself, how many times in the middle of a worship service, you're singing songs and it's songs about forgiveness or something, and it is brought to your mind how you've got an issue with somebody and you need to forgive them or you need to ask them to forgive you. Why? Because you're declaring truth. And as you declare truth, the Spirit of the Lord is able to work in your life and He's able to align you with the way you're supposed to be walking. He begins to show you areas of unforgiveness, self-pity, and pride. You know what? You can't remain unforgiving and really sing, you know, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. How can you sing that and remain unforgiving? How can you sing a song about Jesus forgiving you and then stay unforgiving? When I sing about his forgiveness, it leads me to forgive others. The doorway is closed. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Yes? Yes. You know what? If you're struggling with self-pity, and I'd say one of the main doorways the devil gets a stronghold into our life is in the area of self-pity. Oh, woe is me. I'm, you know, nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. I'm going to eat some worms. You know, that's an old thing we used to say. You ever hear that before, Josh? Never in your life. Um, we used to say that. Um, you know, it's self-pity. 
Everything is going bad. Everybody's mad at me. Nothing, oh, woe is me. Nothing goes my way. Paul and Silas could have been easily saying, oh, woe is me. I'm serving Jesus. We're casting out demons. And woe is me. Look what happened in my life. But you know what? When I'm struggling with self-pity and I choose to worship, things begin to, ch- begin to change. You start singing the hymn of the church, the old rugged cross on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. You know, and I, you know, I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. You begin to focus on, the, on worship, on, on who God is and what he's done, and you suddenly realize, how can I wallow in self-pity? Jesus, who came as a servant, went to a cross and he hung and he died for me. How can I possibly wallow in self-pity? He went through all that for me. I, I can't wallow in self-pity. Praise and worship causes the chains of bondage to drop away because we align ourselves with truth. Does that make sense? You understand what I'm saying? That's the first thing the story reveals to us, that praise and worship breaks the chains of bondage. But there's one other thing. Breaking the chains of bondage is not the only thing that praise and worship accomplished in the situation. Um, it accomplished something else. Look at this with me. Look at the relationship in the text. The relationship between the songs of praise and their supernatural deliverance through the earthquake. They're, they're in the situation. They're praising and worshiping. And it says, and then an earthquake occurs. Friends, we cannot overlook the fact that the Holy Spirit inspired the words to be remembered that as they praised the Lord, then the earthquake occurred. And I believe this is what God wants us to get, that praise directed toward God can shake open prison doors in our life. And you say, but I'm not locked in a real prison. I don't have real shackles on my legs. I believe this is what God wants us to get, that, that, that praise and worship are the pathway through which God will work supernaturally in your situation. The earthquake and the chains falling off were supernatural interventions of God into their real life situations. They were really in real life locked in a prison, locked in chains, locked in stocks, hurt and beating and uncomfortable, and God supernaturally intervened in their world, and the avenue that God chose to come into their world supernaturally through was through praise and worship. And this is what I want you to get today. Praise and worship are linked to divine activity on your behalf in your situation. I really believe God wants us to get this. Because we try everything we can to get God to intervene. We scream, we holler, we call out to Him, we complain... But he's telling us in the story, the key to divine intervention into our lifestyles is praise and worship. Because praise and worship call out for divine intervention. Praise and worship call out for divine provision. Praise and worship call out for divine power. You know, in life, we often find ourselves in situations where there is no humanly possible way to fix our problem. The doctor says, it's terminal. The, the spouse says, I'm leaving. The job, the boss says, you're fired. Or whatever the, the hundred of thousands of other things it could be. We find ourselves in situations where there is no humanly possible way to fix our problems. Friends, it's in those times 
that we prioritize personal praise and worship. And when we do that, I honestly believe, based on Scripture, that we are inviting God to intervene with His power, His wisdom, and His provision into our situation that we cannot change. That's what He's trying to communicate to us through this story. And friends, I'll tell you, I have learned that when things look impossible... It's time to praise and worship God. When things look like there is no answer, it's time to stop and to praise and worship God. It's time to declare as best we can our reliance on His all-sufficient, all-powerful nature that He has. It's time to call out to God for His intervention through praise and worship. Friends, what God wants us to understand today is that praise and worship are connected to the release of God's power in our lives. And I believe in 2011, God wants us to be a church that He releases His power to and through. As we've been praying and talking as a staff about the coming year, we've been saying, what's God saying to us? And what He's saying to us, we really feel, is it's the, it's the year He wants to release power in our church. And that happens, friends, as we commit our lives to being a congregation that are committed to being people who worship and praise. We set it as a priority today so that when we're faced with being beaten and imprisoned, whatever that might look like, we have a priority of praise and worship, and we walk into that thing and we're calling out to God, and then God will miraculously bring His intervention into our lives. He'll miraculously break off the chains that are in our lives. He'll miraculously provide for us when we need him to do what only he can do. You see, Paul and Silas did not decide to start to be worshipers on that night in a Philippian jail. They didn't say, hey, Silas, you're you're, you're sore? Yeah, I think we ought to praise. They had made a decision way back some other day on on the day after Christmas service in the church in Jerusalem. I don't know where they did it. They made that decision And when it came to that hard night, it was simply an overflow of their lifestyles of worship. And my prayer for 2011 is that all of us, starting with myself, that we will follow in their footsteps and that we will be people who every day prioritize personal praise and worship. That every single day we we give ourselves more to worship than complaining more to praising than, look, than talking about our problems. And as we do that, God will break the chains off that hold us. God will keep new chains from coming, and He will release His supernatural flow into our lives. And that's what we want for the coming year, isn't it? Amen. Stand with me this morning.